I think that everyone loves to hear a good birth story. When a couple gives birth, it's always a joyous occasion, and young couples are happy to tell you about their experience. All the unexpected twists and turns make for a pretty good story. You take, for example, the birth story of our son Noah, whom, if you don't know, we adopted from birth. We had gotten to know his birth mother pretty well in the two months before he was born. And so much so that she welcomed us to be in the delivery room right next to hers. In fact, French Hospital gave us the room right next door to where she was going to deliver for free. We got the call late January that she was going into the hospital, so we rushed over and settled into our room. It turns out that we didn't really need to rush, that this was going to be a 70-hour labor. (laughs) But it wasn't us, I guess. We just sat there waiting for 70 hours. They even mirrored the baby's heart rate monitor in our room, so we could just watch along, just sitting looking at a monitor for 70 hours. And finally, Noah came, and we got to be the first ones to hold him. But the story doesn't end there, but because of just the long labor, there was a risk that an infection had passed to the baby. So they wanted to keep him for seven days of observation and antibiotics. And that meant we stayed with him in that same room. Now he's in our room for the next seven days, thanks to, still all for free, by the way. I guess a big thanks to French Hospital. But in the end, it turns out he never got the infection, but it wasn't entirely bad having a a team of nurses wait on you and your newborn for seven days for free. It wasn't so bad. We were able to take him home thereafter. I would say that's a pretty unique birth story. I haven't heard one quite like it. But then again, they're all unique and they're all special just given the, the virtue or by virtue of the life that's being brought into the world. Every child and every birth is special. That being said, of course, there is one birth story that trumps them all, one that surpasses all others by a long shot, has not uh, been seen before, will never be seen again. Of course, you know, I'm sure you can guess, talking about the birth story of Jesus. Christ's birth was unique just by the set of circumstances and the people involved, but it was on top of that unique by virtue of the life that was being brought into the world, the, the nature of this life, human and divine together. And it's from the very beginning of Christ's life on earth that we we already learn the essence of who he is and what he will do. His unique person and his life-giving mission were made clear from his birth story. This is why Matthew starts off his gospel with the birth story of Jesus. He's going to preview for us exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do is from the nature of his birth. So you can open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 1, as we're still really continuing to begin this, this gospel, the gospel of Matthew. We learned last time as we began a new book of the Bible in our study time together, Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. And he does this to, to provide the pre-qualifications of Jesus as the Messiah. And God clearly promised in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be a seed or descendant of Abraham and then David. The Messiah had to come from this family tree. And then what do you know? Jesus had that exact family tree. Matthew shows us Jesus meets these qualifications. He's both legally descended from David through Joseph and then biologically descended from David through Mary. Because that's why Matthew starts his gospel with this genealogy. But thereafter, he moves into narrative, and and his first stop when it comes to telling the story of Christ's life is his birth. It's found in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. 
why does he start here? It's not, it's not just for fun. It's not just a good story, although it is. But Matthew is showing us the manner in which the Messiah came into the world and how that already says so much about who he is and what he will do, which is part and parcel with the gospel itself. Who is this Jesus? That is the big question. And from the genealogy, we've already learned he's the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. These are essential titles and roles of the promised Savior. But that's not all that Jesus is. He's more. He's the son of David, son of Abraham. But he's also the son of God. This Jesus was born son of man and son of God. He will be born as a man with a human mother and Mary, but he will have no human father. He will be conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, such that he will also be the Son of God. This means he will be more than a man. He will be divine, the God-man. And already in the birth story of Jesus, Matthew is revealing this. He's not done introducing us to who Jesus is. He's shown us his royal lineage from David to Abraham His name is Jesus, meaning the Lord is salvation, but he has other names. And we will learn another name here. It is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew's going to show he did not mean that figuratively, literally in the person of this Jesus. We have God with us. So we come now to this special text of the famed virgin birth in scripture. You might say it's hallowed, hallowed ground. You know, it's quite in vogue for liberal theologians of the 1800s to vehemently deny the virgin birth. It's just incredulous. It's unbelievable. It couldn't be true. But to deny the virgin birth of Jesus is to deny his deity, which is to deny the gospel. There's no atonement if this Jesus is not fully man and fully God. But he is. The text makes it quite clear. Yeah, there's still plenty of mystery here. Matthew doesn't even attempt to tell us the mechanics of how this miracle happened, but that's why we call it a miracle. He does make plain, though, Jesus had one human parent, one divine parent, such that the result is he was God in human form. That is who Jesus is. It's essential to the gospel. And that's why it's worth our time to study, carefully understand, and then appreciate this completely unique miracle in Scripture. And likewise, think about that. There are other miracles Jesus performed. His disciples later reproduced them by the power of the Spirit. Not the virgin birth. Never before, never after will this act of God be reproduced. It is completely particular to the person of Christ. It's it's part of his personhood, how he entered this world. And it's worth knowing. The text is Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Today, we're just going to focus on verses 18 through 21, Saving 22 through 25 for next week, I want to give an extra special treatment to the virgin birth as fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah. I'll save that for next time. But for now, we're going to begin Matthew's account of the greatest birth story ever. No understatement. Really, when you think about it, so significant was the birth of Jesus that all of world history was reoriented around it. Literally, that the calendar was reset and redefined based on his birth. It was later changed that the year of his birth was later called year one. A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. 
Everything before that, as if it's irrelevant, it's just, let's just call it B.C., you know, before Christ. It's, it's all the things that happened before he was born. This one figure split all of world and human history in half. So significant was his coming, and namely his birth. So again, it's worth learning about. We're going to do that now. I want to walk you through five highlights to the birth story of Jesus, just to help you appreciate more who he is. Even from his very birth, five highlights to his birth story to help you appreciate who he is. And it starts with the betrothal. First, the betrothal. We'll read as we go, starting in verse 18. Matthew now begins his narrative, and it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. It says, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Starts with the betrothal. His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal is not really a word we use anymore to describe the promise to marry someone. We now speak of an engagement. It's a very similar concept. But you have to understand that to the Jews, a betrothal was far more serious and legally binding than an engagement. Marriages were often arranged by the two parents. Sometimes, often without the involvement of the couple. A dowry was paid to the, the family of the bride. And the man and woman were then effectively sealed in marriage. They were considered legally bound. Such that to call off a betrothal was tantamount to a divorce. That said, though legally binding, a betrothal did not relationally bind the couple. They still would not live together for about a year. After which would be the the chuppah or the marriage ceremony. That's when the wife would start living with her husband and they would consummate the marriage. Before that time though, even though they were betrothed or legally bound... Legally considered husband and wife, the couple was expected to remain sexually pure. And that fact is important for Mary and Joseph. They were, in fact, betrothed. That's why they can refer to one another as husband and wife. But both Mary, or rather Matthew and Luke in Scripture, they make very clear that, that they were pure. Verse 18 states, this was before they had come together. And that's referring to the marriage bed. And then Luke three times refers to Mary as a virgin. It's making plain she had not been with Joseph for any man. This is important for not only upholding Mary's claim to godliness, but for upholding the miraculous nature of Christ's birth. Truly, Mary was a virgin. Now, speaking of Mary and Joseph, we are here introduced to the two main characters of this account, apart from Jesus, of course. And they are familiar to anyone who has seen or been a part of a Christmas play. And my grandma was very Catholic, and Christmas Eve was her night. And even though my family was not religious at all, she was delighted when us kids would act out this Christmas story from Scripture. And so my oldest sister was always the narrator and the director telling us what to do. Uh, I was always Joseph. Uh, and among my siblings and my cousins, I was the only boy. So Joseph it was every year. My cousin Leah was always Mary, and that's mostly because it would have been weird to pretend my other sister was my wife. So my other sister Megan was always stuck playing the angel every year, the same roles. And so every Christmas Eve, we acted out this story for the family. It's one thing, though, for kids to playfully act this out. But I wonder, have you ever actually deeply studied the scriptures to truly wonder what 
this birth story was like. What, what would this have actually been like? It all starts with Mary. We can assume she was a native of Nazareth. And given the fact later on that Mary and Joseph, they could only afford the cheapest sacrifice when they were dedicating Jesus at the temple. It's safe to assume they also were very poor. But what makes Mary truly special was her great faith. Now, you see this mostly in Luke's gospel. Luke tells the birth story from the perspective of Mary. Matthew's going to tell us mostly from the perspective of Joseph. But in Luke, we learn more about Mary. We learn how the angel Gabriel announced to her first the fact of the virgin birth. You know, just the fact that God had chosen her to be the mother of the Messiah, the one who will reign over God's kingdom forever. You have to think about that announcement. It's just unbelievable news. You're this, this poor peasant Jewish girl. You're visited by an angel who says, you're going to conceive and give birth to the king of kings, the savior out of all the people throughout all of human history, you've been chosen for this highest honor. Oh, and by the way, there will be no human father. The Holy Spirit will take care of all of that. Like, who would believe this? It sounds like a, a joke, a cruel joke someone was playing on Mary. But the thing about Mary is she never doubted. She never disbelieved the words of the angel. Earlier, that same angel Gabriel visited this priest named Zacharias and announced to him that his wife would conceive and give birth to a son in her old age. That would be John the Baptist. Zacharias was a priest in the temple and he was given a lesser promise, but he doubted. Luke one eighteen says, Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. And with this, the angel rebuked Zacharias for not believing his words. And the angel gave him the sign he was looking for and made him mute until the baby was born. The first words out of his mouth was John. He will be named John when the baby was born. But look, you have, you have a, a genuinely holy and righteous priest. Zacharias was a, a holy man. He was given a lesser promise that's happened before, like Abraham and Sarah. Nevertheless, he doubted. A moment of doubt came into his heart because the moment proved too big for him. But Mary is being promised something greater, something that's never been done before. But she did not doubt. And she did wonder. Luke one thirty four says, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? It's not wrong to wonder how God will accomplish his promises. But we get no impression that doubt tinged her words. This was a big pill to swallow. The angel told her this child will be of the Holy Spirit. God himself will be the father. And this will be a virgin birth. It's just unheard of. Got to think about from their perspective. We are 2,000 years later, meaning we we have 2,000 Christmases that we think of the virgin birth. It's still miraculous, but at least it's a familiar concept to us. Back then, this was not even a familiar concept. It's unheard of. To Mary, this was inconceivable. But in the end, what was Mary's response? How did she actually respond to the, the message of the angel? Luke one thirty eight says, Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. That's just a statement of faith, literally. 
which is what God regards. Mary would go on to express that same faith in her Magnificat later in Luke chapter 1. She was a true worshiper of the true God. She took God at his word. That was enough. And one more thing. Scripture never says this for certain, but we know back then culturally that most women were married off as young teenagers. So there's a very good chance, culturally speaking, that Mary would have been the equivalent of a a high school freshman girl. Have you ever imagined that? Have you ever thought of Mary as as a young teenager, like a high school freshman girl? Culturally, that's likely. But no matter, great faith can be found among youth if God has opened their eyes to his glory. This was Mary. She was joined by Joseph. We know very little of Joseph. He was a native of Nazareth. His father's name was Jacob. He's likely not wealthy, but he's of royal blood. We learned that last time in the genealogy. He's a a literal descendant of King David. And we often think of Joseph as a carpenter. We only know that from one verse, Matthew 13, 55, where Jesus is referenced as the carpenter's son. Here's the thing, though. That word for carpenter, tecton, it's just a general word meaning builder or craftsman. He could have been any sort of craftsman. The word was often used of woodworkers or carpenters, but that word tecton was sometimes used of metal workers. So it's entirely possible Joseph was actually a blacksmith, which meant Jesus could have inherited that trade and he could have been a blacksmith, not a carpenter. I don't want to rock the boat too much. So let's just keep thinking of Joseph and Jesus as carpenters because we don't know for sure. But like Mary, more importantly, we know a bit of his character. We'll see later. He too is a man of great faith. And shortly, Matthew's going to call him a righteous man in verse 19. Joseph, likewise, was a true believer. He had a genuine love for the Lord. He, he, he sought his law. He, likewise, is probably an older teenager, a young man. But already he's one who, who sought the Lord and wanted to do what was right. And it's precisely because of this fact that Joseph was a righteous man that makes what happens next so hard for him. We find, secondly, the scandal. The scandal from the rest of verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now when you read this verse, it doesn't hit you the same way it hit Joseph. You don't read a huge scandal here because you get the benefit of that last phrase. Like before they came together, she was found to be with child. Would have just ended right there. But you know, like by the Holy Spirit, Matthew's cluing us, the reader, in on the fact that this will be a supernatural birth. But Joseph didn't know that at the time. All Joseph knew is he's betrothed to Mary. They had not come together, but now she's found to be with child. That's where A plus B does not equal C. And this was a huge scandal from Joseph's perspective. And keep in mind, Matthew is mostly telling us the birth story of Jesus from the perspective of Joseph. Again, Luke tells us Mary's perspective. He traces the genealogy through Mary, but Matthew focuses his genealogy and this account more on Joseph. And so you really have to think about this this whole episode from Joseph's 
perspective. Betrothed couples would not really interact much in the year before their wedding ceremony. They weren't living together. They had not come together. But someday, somehow, Joseph discovers she's pregnant. How did he learn that? Did Mary tell him? The text doesn't say. It seems very unlikely, given what we know, that Mary said anything. We don't have a full timeline here, but we can piece a few things together. We know that first, the angel Gabriel went to Mary and announced to her that she would conceive. That happens first. Right after that, Luke tells us that Mary went and visited her relative, who was Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And that means, in case you didn't know, that Jesus and John the Baptist were either first or second cousins. Mary then stayed with Elizabeth, Elizabeth for three months until she gave birth to John. It seems like Mary was probably serving as the midwife for her relative Elizabeth. She probably helped deliver John the Baptist. But that also means Mary was there for her first trimester. Only after that, Luke 156 tells us that she returned home to Nazareth. I think it's safe to assume that's when Joseph found out because her body was probably starting to show that she was with child. Did Mary try and defend her purity to Joseph? What was that conversation like? Did she try and say anything? Like, no, no, you don't understand. It was another guy. It was the Holy Spirit. An angel told me I would have child and, and God would be the father. Just saying that out loud, you already know how ridiculous that would sound to anyone, to Joseph or any person. Like, who would believe anything she had to say? It's not recorded, but it seems possible that the angel just told Mary not to tell Joseph because God had his own plans for involving Joseph in this matter. It's also evident from Joseph's own reaction to this scandal that he's still clueless. He has no idea that God is at work here. Instead, according to verse 19, he just naturally assumed, like any man would, that Mary, his betrothed wife, had committed adultery and had been unfaithful. Verse 19, it says, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. If he already knew, he, he wouldn't have done that. But again, you've got to ask yourself, how would you react in this situation? No different. Say you're engaged. Your wedding is one month out. You find your wife-to-be is pregnant. You've not been together. What would be some expected reactions Shock, outrage, hurt, anger, jealousy, revenge for some people, violence. The most definite reaction would be to call the wedding off. What man would continue to go through with that wedding? A marriage must be founded on trust. But in Joseph's mind, Mary had violated that trust. Turns out she's not a godly woman after all. So he resolved to divorce her. Verse 19 says, Joseph is a righteous man. It means just upright. It means he's by no means willing to just wink at Mary's sin and overlook it. Joseph had a reverence for God and his law. And that meant he viewed Mary's sin as a huge affront to both him and God. Being genuinely righteous, he would have been repulsed by her deed of unrighteousness. And so Joseph condemned her crime. It means she was worthy of some consequences. According to God's law, adultery was not to be tolerated. 
But this already makes you wonder how much of a heart of affection had formed in Joseph for Mary, because he did not take the path of vengeance in his response. He didn't smash her car windshield. He didn't throw her clothes out the window. He couldn't accept her crime, but it says he was unwilling to publicly shame her. You find there's a measure of mercy in his response. By no means could Joseph go through with this marriage. But at the same time, he, he didn't want her to come under the sharp edge of the law. Technically, according to Jewish law, the penalty for adultery was death. This would have merited stoning. Now, under Roman rule, the Jews no longer really had the power to carry out capital punishment, but they often formed their own little mobs to enact their own sense of justice. If you recall the woman caught in adultery with Jesus, that mob was getting ready to stone her to death. So if Joseph wanted, he probably could have rounded up a mob to have stoned Mary. But no, the text says he did not want to disgrace her. He would show her a measure of mercy in just sending her away secretly. That phrase, send away, means to loose or to unbind. It's akin to divorce. He was going to formally cancel this betrothal, but do so quietly and discreetly. Mary would still bear some shame. You can't really hide a pregnancy, but at least she wouldn't face total public humiliation or worse. And Joseph, in turn, could just just move away. What a mess, though, and what a scandal. It's so interesting how the pattern of scandal continues in the birth line of Jesus. If you're with us last time, the genealogy of Jesus, we found these four names stand out. Matthew includes the names of four women. Unlikely or really unheard of to include women in the genealogy of anyone, but includes these four women. What's more notable is they all represented scandal in Israel's history. Most of them because they related to sexual morality. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, they all represent some form of scandal in Israel's history. Why does Matthew include them? He could just easily use some whiteout or gloss right over them, just not included them at all. Why bring up their names? Only to show God's grace. And, And by God's grace, even these sinners were grafted into the family tree of the Messiah. There's actually a fifth name in the genealogy of Jesus. It's Mary. But here, that that history of scandal is repeating itself. Another woman, a young woman, Mary, now a teen mom, pregnant and unwed. Now, even though she was actually pure, still, it it was a scandal. How the rumors would fly of, of her immorality. But isn't it interesting how this is how God chose to bring the Messiah into the world. As we'll see, though, he had his reasons. First, it's time for God to bring Joseph up to speed on his plans for this child. This leads to number three, the angel. Third highlight in this birth story that the angel. Verse 20, just to start, it says, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Again, no timeline is given. We don't know how long. But enough time had passed for Joseph to make up his mind. He had considered the matter, thought about it, and then settled it. 
he was going to divorce Mary. But before the deed could be done, an angel visited him. There's already something to observe here. Makes you wonder, like, why didn't God let Joseph in on his plans from the beginning? Could have spared him all that heartache. Why let Joseph go through that the heartbreaking struggle of thinking Mary had been unfaithful? Maybe this all happened to Joseph in the span of a day, maybe a week. But still, before the angel came to him, I mean, Joseph must have gone through so much anguish and, and suffering. It was a soul-crushing revelation that his wife Mary had been unfaithful to him. Why would God let him go through with that? Couldn't he have just told Joseph from the beginning that the child was of the Holy Spirit and just saved Joseph from all that trouble? But you have to realize, God does this all the time, on purpose. It does not mean he's unaware of the trials and tribulations of his people. No, he's very much aware God might be the one presenting you with the trial or tribulation. But also with a purpose in mind and for his people, that purpose is always good. That's because to God, such testing is shaping. When he tries, he purifies. God has a reason for not instantly taking away your every thorn in the flesh. He has a purpose in not resolving all of your tension in life. He's probably using that to force you to remember him and to turn to him, to rely on him. You know, something we call faith. But don't ever think God is unaware of your trials or unconcerned. He's very much aware. It's time now for you to become aware of him. That he's, he's trying to shape you in your trial. In this case, though, God determined not to leave Joseph in his wilderness for too long. Before he got to actually divorce Mary, the angel shows up and has a message for him. It doesn't say, but it's hard to think this was anyone other than the same angel, Gabriel, who had spoken to Zacharias and Mary. There's a cluster of angel appearances around the birth of Jesus. That makes sense. Angels are often deployed as the messengers of God, especially when God is revealing himself and with the coming of Jesus. And we're getting incarnate revelation. And so God used a multitude of angels in the birth story of Jesus to announce the coming of the Messiah. Here, Joseph is chosen to receive a special revelation of the good news. The angel showed up to Mary in person. Joseph receives a dream for reasons unstated. Still, this message to Joseph was meant for the benefit of all the church. And that's why it's recorded in scripture. And in this message, we learn about the miraculous birth of Jesus. This brings us to number four, the miracle. Fourthly, the miracle. It's found in what the angel has to say. Moving into continuing verse 20, the angel said to him in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. First, you'll notice how the angel hails Joseph as the son of David. And that he was, he was of royal blood. And God did not need Joseph to father this child, Jesus. The Holy Spirit would take care of that. But God aimed to use Joseph to legally father Jesus, such that his legal lineage would pass on to his adopted son. Something we talked about last time with the genealogy. 
So the angel tells Joseph, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. Obviously, meaning he was afraid. He was very concerned. He was not going to take her as his wife. But not so fast. There's some good news here. Probably the best news Joseph could have asked for. That his primary reason for divorcing her, his only reason, her adultery, was actually unfounded. She, she was pure. She was godly. She was righteous. Joseph could marry her with a clean conscience. But, but wait, like, she's still pregnant. How can this be? In this case, only one way, the angel reveals, that for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Matthew and Luke are both very careful to never call or insinuate that Joseph is the father, because he's not. Galatians 4, 4 says, at the appointed time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Not born of a man, born only of a woman. Mary was his human mother, but he had no human father. God himself would be the father. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. What does that really mean? Matthew does not explain. He gives no theological lesson here. But, you know, really, what more could he say? He's told us the essence of the matter. Jesus had no human father. God was the father, a divine father. The obvious implication is that he would be no mere man. Matthew's going to tell us more in the next passage, even more, from the second name the child is given, Emmanuel, God with us. We learn this child will be God and man at the same time, the God-man. What more can Matthew really say, though, to describe this miracle? That the mystery of the virgin birth, it defies everything we know about biology, but who cares? I mean, God created the laws of nature and biology. He can do as he pleases. It's natural to wonder, like Mary did, how can this be? But you can't improve upon the answer that the angel gave to her. It's found in Luke 135. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. That's it. I mean, overshadowed, I think is the best word you could use to describe this. Just because it makes clear the Holy Spirit haven't had an overriding role, but then it leaves pretty much everything else vague. And you pick a word with any more precision, you're probably going to say too much. You're probably going to move into error. The mechanics beyond this are left to mystery, but that doesn't matter. The implications are what matters. And because of this paternity, this will be a holy child. He'll be called the son of God, God in flesh. And so I realize just from his birth story, Matthew's already told us enough of who Jesus will be. Fully human. And fully divine at the same time. And upon reflection, Jesus could not have come into the world any other way. While still communicating that he had both a fully human and fully divine nature. I mean, just think, if he did not have any human parent, especially a mother, if he did not enter the world through a womb like everyone else, it would be very hard to believe he was a true man. That he could be like a second Adam come to live for us and and succeed where the first Adam failed. How could we think he was actually a man if he was not born? But at the same time, if he had two human parents and had a a totally normal birth, it would be very hard to believe he was more than a man. God incarnate? No, rather with a human mother, 
born through a womb, yet with God as his father, God put on full display his wisdom in making known the true nature of Jesus from the beginning. He's not part human, part divine. He will be fully human and fully divine at the same time. Two natures in one person. And keep in mind, both are required for his work. The person and work of Jesus are both essential to the gospel message. So if you get his person wrong, you get his work wrong, which means you get the gospel wrong, and you have no gospel. That The one reason this child was born into the world was to die, to die that death on the cross, and, and that purpose of that death was to atone, to make a complete atonement for all of our sins. He came to be, as you read this morning, this perfect, once-for-all, lasting substitute sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats cannot actually take away our sins. Only another human being can stand in the place of humans as their substitute. But who are you going to find for that? You can't even pay for your own sin debt, let alone the sins of a multitude of people. But Jesus, being fully human, was able to be a substitute sacrifice for humans, yet being fully God was able to be a sufficient substitute sacrifice for humans. He could pay for all of your sin and then some because he was also fully God. By virtue of his divine life in human form, only he could make this complete lasting payment for your sin. Only the God man could drink down the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. And that's what he did for us. That's why he came. But if you lose or tarnish either the full humanity or full deity of Jesus, you've just lost the gospel. There's no atonement. There's no good news. You're still dead in your sins. But this is why Matthew records the birth story of Jesus. He's showing us from the beginning that this Jesus really is fully human and fully divine. His genealogy paired with the virgin birth, establishes the fullness of his person. Fully man, fully God. He's son of Abraham, son of David. He's also son of God. He's born of Mary. He's also born of the Holy Spirit. He's Jesus. He's also Emmanuel. It really shouldn't have been that surprising to to Israel. I mean, didn't God promise through Isaiah the prophet that a virgin will be with child She'll give birth and she'll call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Shouldn't they have known? We'll find that out next week. But for now, it's important to appreciate all that the virgin birth communicates. We're not saved by Christmas. We're saved by Easter, meaning it's really the death and resurrection that saves us, that that provides for our redemption. But you don't get to Easter without Christmas. If Jesus had not been born into the world in this way, he could not have made true atonement in our place. And this is why it's only fitting, especially in this Advent season, that we remember him and remember precisely how he came into the world and why it actually matters. It's not just a a cute story for kids to act out. We need to praise God that the son would humble himself to this degree, take on human flesh, be born of a woman to die for us. And that's what he would do as the final words of the angel tell. Lastly, number five, the hope. 
You find the hope in the verse 21 that the words, the final words of the angel to Joseph, he goes on to say, verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And in that culture, it was always the father's right to name the child. And a lot went into a name, Jewish names seem to always carry a, a lot of significance in what the name actually meant. But periodically throughout redemptive history, God would step in, just clearly override a man's prerogative to give a name. And God would say, I'll name that person myself. Often God would rename people. And every time God gives someone a new name, it, it always carried significance for his purposes for that person. Every time. God renamed Abram to Abraham. God renamed Jacob to Israel. Later, Jesus renamed Simon to Peter. He renamed Levi to Matthew. And then later, Saul to Paul. And this time, God is stepping in in advance. And he's going to just take it over from the beginning. He will give the son a name. Because it's his child after all. Joseph is not the birth father. He does not have the right to give a name. God's the father. He will name his own son. And he directs Joseph to call his name Jesus. I told you last week, the name Jesus in Greek comes from Yeshua in Hebrew, which really is the word Joshua. And so when we say Jesus in English, or rather when we say Joshua, that really is the English equivalent of what they would have called him. His name was essentially Joshua. The name itself has meaning. Joshua is a combination of Yahweh, the name of God, and Yesha, which means to save, so Joshua means the Lord is salvation or the Lord saves. Joshua is a very common name in the first century, but with the coming of Jesus, we find someone who's actually going to live up to the name. He's going to fulfill the meaning of this name. And so the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This child will finally be the one to save his people. Save them from what? From, from Rome? And don't think too small. Israel longed for the Messiah because they were under the heavy hand and oppression of Rome. And look, God cares about that. He cares about injustice and, and unrighteousness. He has a heart for the downtrodden and the oppressed. He has a heart for the sick and the suffering. But still, those are not our greatest problems in life. I mean, why do all these problems exist in this fallen world? And they all trace back to sin, <clears throat> our sin against the holy God and its consequences. And in Christ, God was going to deal with the root of our problem by addressing our sin condition. This is why Jesus came not bearing a sword to conquer Rome, but bearing a cross to conquer sin and Satan and death. And so it's by virtue of who this Jesus is and what he would do for us, that we find him supremely worthy. Jesus is worth your entire life. He, he bought your life. He came and died for your life. He saved your life. He's purchased your life. He owns your life. And you need to give it back to him. Every breath of yours should be lived for him. He's worthy of your worship. And yes, this is worship that belongs to God alone. But we rightly give it to Jesus because he is God incarnate. 
Like Revelation 5.12 says, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This birth story of Jesus is not finished. There's a bit more because God's going to give him a second name. One name is not enough. He's too significant of a figure. That's why Jesus has dozens of names and titles. I'll say a little something else about who he is and what he would do. And here in his birth story, God wanted to explicitly connect the dots to what this virgin birth meant. And we'll find next time he gives him a second name of Emmanuel, God with us. But for now, as an important final thought, that there's only one right response to this Jesus and his birth and his faith. By faith alone, can you receive this salvation that he came to bring? And if you want to know what faith looks like, then you should consider Joseph. Here we are, we're in Matthew after all, and he's, he's showing us this account from Joseph's perspective. Joseph is easily the most overlooked character in the birth story of Jesus. But it's worth for us, as we reflect on faith, to appreciate how great faith Joseph had. Joseph, like Mary, did not question the Lord. He did not doubt. He didn't ask for a sign. He simply received the revelation of the Lord, believed it, and then obeyed. It goes on to say down in verse 24 and 25, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. There's no struggle anymore. It's just, just total obedience. And that comes from faith. Do you realize how socially hard it would have been for Joseph too? I mean, Mary was still pregnant. People would have put together, like, she clearly got pregnant before their marriage consummation. So it was still scandalous. They both lived under a cloud of suspicion. And this still wasn't his son. Joseph was forced into adoption. But he rose to his calling. By faith, he would raise this child as his own. By faith, he would accept the mantle to father this child. By faith, Joseph would protect him. Later, we'll learn in Matthew 2, when Herod was threatening the life of the child Jesus, it was Joseph who took his whole family down to Egypt just to protect him. Joseph was ready to do whatever it takes to protect and serve this promised child of God, even though it wasn't his child. It's only one explanation for that, and it is faith, true faith. He believed what was spoken of concerning this child, that he will be the savior. He will save his people from their sins. And, and Joseph was willing to give his whole life over to this child to serve him. And that's what you need to do as well. May the same great faith of Joseph be found in you. That you too would be willing to do whatever it takes to follow this savior, to serve him for all he has done for you. Cling to Jesus by faith, you'll find that the same salvation, hope, and joy that was promised with his birth. Let's pray together. Our glorious God in heaven, we, we do thank you and praise you for the salvation and the hope and the joy that you promised in the birth of your son. 
We, we take it as good news, though we're not saved by his birth, that there would be no salvation apart from it. We praise you for your wisdom put on display and how you would send the Savior into the world. Really the only way that none could have fathomed. But as we now look back on it, we do marvel and we, we praise you. We thank you for this, the holy child born free from sin, yet fully human, fully divine. The only one who could be our sin bearer. It's all happened for a purpose, Lord. And to, to save your people from their sins. We are the, the beneficiaries of that. So we exalt you. Those who have not been enlightened, Lord, open their eyes. Show them, even in, in the birth story of Jesus, from the beginning, who he is. Confront them with the person of Christ and his work. And I pray you help them yield to the same faith of, of Joseph. I thank you this, throughout this whole Advent season, although these truths should be on our mind every day. This time of year, we, we want to marvel for the right reasons of what Christmas means. May we leave here just worshiping you more for your wisdom on display and, and the advent of the Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.